The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, everyone. Our passage this morning is from Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to skip down to verses 15 through 19. And this can be found on page 699 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. When you are ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. In the first year of Darius, son of Azarias, by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as you just heard, we're in Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to be working our way through those 19 verses, the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. Sermon titled this morning is The Fuel of Prayer. The Fuel of Prayer. What is it that fuels the soul to be a soul that prays? The main idea that we're going to find this morning from these verses is the answer to that question, namely that it's the promises of God. The promises of God are the fuel of prayer. If you wanted to consider prayer as an engine that is to continually be running, chugging forward, not only in the individual aspects of men and women who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, but even as a corporate aspect, what should keep the prayer engine chugging along? What we're going to see this morning from Daniel's prayer that we just read a portion of is this. It is the promises of God. These are the fuel. This is what fuels prayer. So I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray. We're going to ask God to move 
in power, in might, as we get to lean over the shoulder, as it were, of this prophet and listen to him pray to God. And we're going to discover some ways of what it looks like for us to be men and women who pursue God in prayer, just like this brother did as well. So let's pray for one another as we ask the Holy Spirit to breathe on this time. Father, we are here for you right now. We are here to magnify your name. We're here to glorify you. We're here to put our nose in the word and then to lift our face in prayer to you. You are worthy. You are holy. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are slow to anger. You abound in faithfulness. You abound in steadfast love. Father, from our time right now in the word, would you move? Would you send the Spirit? Would you empower this time with the Spirit? Drench this time, drench these words. Would you capture our hearts with the fuel of prayer so that you would ignite the heartbeats of Delta Church to be a congregation that says, I don't know much, but I know this. We must, we have to be a people who pursue God in prayer. We just have to be. We have to be. God, I cannot make us want the have to be. It has to be you. And so I'm asking God, would you come now and turn our hearts to you to make us desire you and pursue you as a people who pray. I pray this in the powerful name of Christ our King. Amen. Well, as it's already been alluded to a couple of times here, Pastor Tom, this morning we are pressing pause on our little short sermon series, this short sermon series we've been in called Everyday Disciples. But there's also a sense in which we are not pressing pause by turning to the sermon and turning to the scriptures that we're going to be looking at this morning. Because, as we will see in the weeks ahead, one of the gospel-shaped identities that defines an everyday disciple is that an everyday disciple is a follower. And followers of Jesus abide in Jesus through time spent in the Word and through time spent in prayer. It's those two realities that converge in the life of a follower, someone who says, Jesus has saved me, he's my savior, and because he's also my Lord, and turning face to him in prayer. And we're going to see that Daniel, in these verses, models this very thing for us this morning. Now here's what I love about the text that we're about to get into. These 19 verses which give us the man, Daniel, a prophet of God, giving himself to the word and to prayer. 
What I love about this text is that it is a perfect confluence of two streams, the perfect merging of two realities. On one hand, the culture of Daniel's day was a crucible of antagonism. Daniel knows what it's like to be an everyday disciple living out life in the crucible of daily living. He's a man in a kingdom, a kingdom that is antagonistic to the kingdom of God, antagonistic to the things of God. The people in power, the people making decisions, they are opposed to Yahweh. But merging with this stream, this reality that we find Daniel in, we also discover that in spite of this antagonism, in spite of this crucible of daily living, Daniel flourished as a word-driven man committed to prayer. If you want to backtrack a couple of weeks into Jeremiah 17, pull it forward and lay it on top of the life of Daniel, what we would say is Daniel is not the desert shrub. Daniel is the green, flourishing, fruitful tree whose heart, roots are anchored in streams of living water so that as he lives life in the crucible of antagonism, woven into society in the culture he finds himself in, we get a snapshot of a man who's not surviving, just barely hanging on by by his fingernails, you find a man who is absolutely thriving. Thriving. So if you jump forward into our day, it should be no surprise for you to hear me say that like Daniel, we find ourselves on a similar confluence. For we too live in a world that is in equally antagonistic to the things of God. We too find ourselves in a society, in a culture that rages, a la Psalm 2, against the lordship of King Jesus. And so the question is, as the crucible of antagonism increases in our culture, as the crucible of antagonism doesn't do this, but is doing this more and more, what should an everyday disciple do? How should you live? What actions should we take as someone who finds ourselves in a similar Daniel-esque kind of crucible. Well, according to Daniel chapter 9, what we're going to see is that we don't set our hair on fire and spin out of control because antagonism is increasing. This empowered man of God is this, as we double down on the fuel of prayer. You see, this is why Daniel chapter 9 is so perfect for us this morning. Because the backdrop to Daniel's prayer is one of major cultural upheaval. If you know the book of Daniel, or perhaps it's not as familiar to you, if you were to travel back towards the end of Daniel chapter 5, what you'll find is this little sentence describing the major cultural upheaval that has taken place. Daniel tells us that there was a king who was in control. His name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, though, has been killed. He's no longer in control. And it's not just that another Babylonian king has died and the Babylonian kingdom is still trucking along. No, Belshazzar is dead. He has died and the Babylonian kingdom is no more. 
And what has happened now is that a fellow named Darius the Mede has received the kingdom. So the Babylonian Empire and all that it stood for has completely just crashed to the ground and a whole new kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, has just blown onto the scene and a man named Darius the Mede is the one ruling and reigning. This is major cultural upheaval. This is an old kingdom out, new kingdom in. But the thing that is the common denominator between those two kingdoms is this, a common united antagonism to the things of Yahweh. And the opening verses of Daniel chapter 9 tell us that in the first year of Darius's reign, that is right smack dab in the middle of this cultural upheaval, guess what Daniel's doing? Daniel's having a quiet time. He's there right in the middle of it, not lighting his hair on fire and spinning out of control. Daniel's going to do what Daniel has always done. In the midst of major cultural upheaval, Daniel, remember, was taken as an exile from his home. He was taken to a country he did not want to go to. He was re-educated according to things he would not have agreed with. But through it all, Daniel thrived. Daniel flourished. He was the green fruitful tree. Why? Because Daniel said one thing will remain. I will put nose in word. I will turn face to Yahweh in prayer, no matter what comes. And it's as we peek over Daniel's shoulder. This is what Daniel chapter nine is. It's like we're a fly on the wall. Or if you want to use this kind of language, it's like we get the benefit of taking our head and just sort of peeking right over Daniel's shoulder as he's going to begin to read his Bible and he's going to continue to pray to the Lord, we are going to learn something about prayer as we watch Daniel pray. And the first thing we get to learn is this, that prayer is grounded in the promises of God. That's what we're going to see in the first three verses. Prayer is grounded in the promises of God. Just look at what he writes in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, here it is, according to the word of the Lord, so he's reading his Bible, specifically the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem would come, namely 70 years. In light of this, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him, here it is, in prayer, seeking him with pleas for mercy, coupling that with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You see, Babylon the Great had fallen. Darius was now on the throne. And even though this event had a major impact on Daniel's life, Daniel learns in this quiet time, like literally he's telling us, this is what I was doing. I was reading a book of the Bible, a book of the Bible that's in your Bible in your lap right now. So you sort of got like a case of inception going on here, right? Where you've got Daniel, a prophet of God, who's in your Bible telling us he was reading one of the books of the Bible in your Bible. There you go. Tom just did it. Yeah, chance has got it right over there, right? So it's not like the Bible is just for us and it was good for nobody else. Even Daniel himself knew he needed to be in the Word of God. And as he is reading the Word of God, specifically the book of Jeremiah, 
he discovers that Yahweh has made a very, very particular promise to the people of God. Specifically, per Jeremiah, 70 years must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem will come. So through the window of Daniel chapter 9, we learn that Daniel was most likely reading something like Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 12. These verses in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 12, you could see them in your own copy of Scripture, but they say this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, here's a promise, I will visit you. Here's another promise. And I will fulfill to you my, even uses the word there, promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, that's prayer, and come and pray to me, that's prayer, and promise I will hear you. You see, what Daniel understood was that God had made a promise concerning the duration of the exile. Seventy years has to pass. But once that 70 years has passed, I will act in a way to bring the exile to an end and bring you back to the land that I have given you. Therefore, because of what God had promised to do, Verse 3, Daniel turns his face to the Lord, seeking him in prayer, seeking him with pleas for mercy, seeking him with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You see, saints, it was the unbreakable, the unbreakable promise from God that motivated Daniel to plead the promise in prayer. So from this, what we can learn is that the promises of God are the fuel of prayer. That's what's going on right now in the scriptures. Daniel knew what God said he would do, but that did not demotivate him to pray. Far too often, we can tip off the wrong side of the horse, so to speak, because we look at the scriptures and see God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And because we have a high view of who God is, we say he can do what he says he's going to do. If we're not careful, what we can sort of do is just sit back in our chair, cross our hands and say, God, will go ahead and do what you're going to do. There's a sense, and sometimes, if we're not careful, the promises of God lead us to draw the conclusion I can just sit back and do nothing but Daniel says I see what God said he's going to do and instead of reading that promise of God's word leading him to go well you know what I guess I can just sit back and do nothing it doesn't demotivate him what it does is it actually motivates him to grab that promise bend his knee turn his face to Yahweh and just launch that promise right back up into the heavens he grabs the promise and he pleads it in prayer right back to God. It animates him to lay hold of God's promise in prayer, asking Yahweh to fulfill the very thing he said he would bring to pass. And friends, it's no different when you and I pray to our Heavenly Father. You see, when we stick our nose in the word of God, we will find the promises of God. And this is significant for understanding prayer 
Because true prayer rests on what God has promised to do in his word. True prayer, what does it rest on? It rests on what God has promised to do in his word. So as we head into 30 days of prayer, right, the reason why we're hitting pause and we're turning attention to Daniel chapter 9, because starting on Thursday, April the 1st, corporately, as a church, we're inviting everyone to take these pieces of paper that are on the seats, to grab one of those prayer guides from the connect table or the little skinny table down there on the entrance or downstairs, to grab one of these digitally online and say, okay, so if this is what true prayer looks like, if it looks like grabbing the promises of God and following the model laid down for us by Daniel, what does it look like for us as a body of believers to collectively unite our heart by saying, here are promises in Scripture, let's not just sit back and cross our hands, let's grab these promises and launch them right back up to our Father in heaven. What does it look like for us to corporately unite under this way? Well, you see, part of the questions that we should be asking ourselves then is, as we head into this reality of 30 days of prayer, if it's true that true prayer rests on what God has promised to do in his word, we need to be asking ourselves at least this first question, am I in God's word to even know what he has promised? You see how this works? It's hard to plead the promises of God back to God if you don't know the promises of God from the word. And the second question we should at least ask ourselves is this. If I am in God's word to know what he has promised, will I then plead those promises back to God in prayer? You see, I think most of us, there's a measure of we spend time in the word but we then don't take that next step further to carve out the time to take the word and the promises we just read and turn them in prayer right back to God. I know that I'm guilty of that. Carve out time for time in the word, but then as soon as time is done, Bible's closed, I go on my way. And I'm asking God to grow me in this, and I'm asking God to grow us in this, if you find yourself in the exact same place. Well, you're like, okay, great, Pastor John, true prayer rests on what God has promised to do in his word. Okay, so I need to be reading my Bible. I'm going to find some promises, and I'm being called to plead those promises right back to God in prayer. So what could this look like? What should this look like? What can it look like? Well, maybe it could look like this. Perhaps you find yourself in the middle of a trial, Anyone find yourself in the middle of a trial right now? A little bit of suffering going on in your world? Yeah? So, if so, what you can do is you can pray the promise of James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, promise, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. All right, so there you are, life, trial, word of God, grab the promise, plead it right back to God in prayer. Or perhaps you struggle with assurance of your salvation. If you are truly born again, you have the promise that Christ will preserve you to the end in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and promise they will never perish and promise no one will snatch them out of my hand. Are you tempted to think that your last sin put you beyond God's grace? Then lay hold of this promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 that says, If we confess our sins, promise he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to promise cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps you just simply struggle to believe that God even desires to hear your prayer. Then cling to the promise of 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, promise he hears us. Or maybe in the mundane rhythms of life, it's easy for you to lose sight of God's plan, to accomplish all things for his glory. So you read a promise like Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, where the prophet says, the earth promise will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and this spurs you on to then be mighty in prayer or perhaps you're losing hope that salvation will ever come for your neighbor you've shared Jesus with your co-worker and they don't care your family member or your friend have been on the receiving end of you pointing them to Christ calling them to respond. Christ gave you an opportunity to talk about the holiness of God, to talk about the sinfulness of man, pointing them to the redemption that can be found in Christ, the Savior who saves. But when the response came, they said, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. And you're beginning to lose hope that salvation will ever come for them. But then you remember the promise of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Your mind drifts to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus, out of his own mouth, says, I am the Son of Man, and the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus came to do. This, this is what his mission was. He came to accomplish this. And so what that does, that reminds you in that moment the promise of who Christ is and what he accomplished. You lay hold of that promise and you pray it right back to the Father. Father, I've shared Jesus with this person. I've called them to respond. I've given them a chance to respond. They know God holiness. They know man sinfulness. They know Christ salvation in him alone. But God, open their eyes to see. God, would you bring them from death to life? This is what you love to do. They're lost. They need to be found by you. This is what you love to do. They're on the road, wide destruction leading to hell. They need to be plucked off that path and placed onto the path that is narrow, that is eternal life found in you, rooted in you alone. God, will you do this? You are praying the promises of the Father right back to him when you pray, Jesus, this is what you said you came to do. So I'm going to lay hold of that promise. And I'm going to shove it right back up into the heavens. I'm going to lay it right at the foot of our living God. You see, it is rock-solid promises like these saints and hundreds more, hundreds more, which fuel the prayer of God's people. 
And it's this kind of example that we see in Daniel who prayed for God to do what he had promised to do and then prayed with confidence because he was praying, praying what God had promised. Next, Daniel moves on and then he shows us that prayer also involves confession. That's point number two. Prayer involves confession. Not only does prayer involve praying the promises of God, but prayer involves confession. And that's what you see in verses 4 through 14. You see, prayer is a means of communion with God. It's a way to talk with him, to relate with the God who saved you. And not only is it a way for us to have fellowship with our Savior, with our Creator, but it's also an opportunity for us to walk humbly with him, to walk honestly with him. And as Daniel shows us, this means prayer will involve the act of confession. He says so there there in verse 4. Do you see it? I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So first we see that prayer involves a right confession of who God is. You see examples of this in verses 4, 7, and 9. Daniel begins his prayer by rightly focusing on God in verse 4. He says, The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is, who the, this is the God I'm praying to. Daniel also says, Our God owns righteousness, mercy, and forgiveness. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. So prayer involves confession, And true confession will always begin with an admission of who God is. God, this is who you are. You're the righteous one. You're the merciful one. You're the gracious one. Second, prayer also involves a right confession of who we are before God. So notice that Daniel hasn't even gotten to the point of asking something of of, of Yahweh. Most of us will step into prayer and be like, yeah, yeah, hey, hey, God, it's sort of me again. You're holy and righteous. And then, boom, we just launch right in. Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? I've got this petition. I've got this ask. I got this want. I got this need. Daniel is slowing down. He's giving himself to 11 verses of confession. God, I'm confessing this is who you are. 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 And now he's rounding the corner saying, in light of who you are, I'm going to confess this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who we are as a people. Remember, Daniel is in exile in Babylon as a result of Israel's sin. And as he surveys his surroundings and the attitude and actions of God's people, it leads him to confess sin. There was just no denying that God's people had sinned in their actions, their acts of commission. So Daniel prays in verse 5, We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We are the ones who've turned aside from your commandments and rules. But then his confession continues, and he confesses that they've also sinned by their inaction, by their omission, the things they have not done. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Daniel surveys the surroundings, his heart and the actions of his people, 
From royalty to commoners, from high to low, Daniel admits all of us, all of us, Yahweh, all of us stand guilty before you. And Daniel mourns the obvious consequence of this pervasive sin by saying, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame for this reason. In short, Daniel sums it all up in verse 11, starting in verse 11 when he prays. All Israel's transgressed your law and turned aside. We've refused to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Yahweh. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And the thing which bothers Daniel the most is that while Yahweh kept his promise to judge their sin as he said he would, God's people on the receiving end of God keeping that promise refused to repent. So he prays in verse 13, all this calamity has come upon us, yet, yet, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. In other words, Daniel saw that God's people were still hard of heart, still steeped in sin, and it was this lack of repentance which stirred his heart. Have you ever been in the place, saints, where the lack of repentance on someone in your life stirred you to pray on their behalf? Have you ever found yourself with your head on the pillow at night, body tired but mind racing, not because of the 101 things you have to do the next morning, but mind racing with the reality that my neighbor has refused to repent and believe in Christ, that my coworker has not responded to the gospel, that if they keep traveling the path of sin which they are on, they will find themselves as rebels on the receiving end of God's righteous wrath. This is where Daniel is at. He's looking around and seeing a people steeped in sin, hard of heart, and he doesn't just go, oh, well, some people make poor decisions in life. No, it drives him to be a man of prayer, to stick nose in word, lay hold of promise, launch them into the heavens, right back to God as a result of the lack of confession in others. Now, this is one of those moments in the Bible where we tend to go, you know, tisk, tisk, tisk. That's God's people, they should have known better. If I was there in that place, I wouldn't be one of those people. But the question is, how often do we find ourselves in the exact same place? So maybe you're not sitting here reaping the calamity of the exile like the people were in Daniel chapter 9, but how often do we reap the calamity of sin in our lives? where we keep running to the puny pleasures of sin, wondering why we keep finding ourselves in the places we do, yet never stopping to entreat the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by his truth. 
You see, whether it's a people individually or a church corporately, there must be a measure of prayer that involves confession of sin individually, in our own lives, corporately, as a body of believers. Again, when we gather on a Sunday morning, we're just rehearsing the gospel. So when we have that time of confession in our gathered liturgy, this isn't confession because we need to scorch five to seven minutes of a Sunday morning. What we're trying to do is model ourselves upon the scriptures here, recognizing that true, good, seeking God, Christ-centered prayer, there must be a measure of confession of sin. Prayer that repudiates self-advocacy before a holy God. This isn't Daniel going, God, we're good enough to be on your team. God, we're good enough to be not in this place. He's saying, no, we've, get, we've gotten what we've deserved. God, we ran after everything but you. I am confessing this to be true. You have upheld your end of the bargain. You've done and kept the promises you said you would keep. But that doesn't lead Daniel again to cross his hands and say, who cares? It leads Daniel to confess, to repudiate self-advocacy and say, God, if we are going to be right with you, you need to act right now. Prayer that humbly acknowledges, God, we're the ones who have not obeyed you. That's why we find ourselves in this place. In the end, Daniel leads the way as the chief confessor, acknowledging the sin and rebellion of God's people. So my question for you is, who among us will be a chief confessor? Is there anyone here that will stand up and step into the gap and say, not on my watch? Is there someone who's being fanned into flame right now by the Spirit of God saying, I will be the chief confessor? I'm not going to let this time slip by. I'm going to redeem the moments that God has given me, and I will pursue God, yielding the promises of God in prayer right back to him, not resting on my laurels, not leaning back in passivity, but actively standing up in the crucible of antagonism that is increasing in our culture, in our society, as hostility grows. Either we will choose to set our hair on fire and run out of control, or we will anchor ourselves as everyday disciples in the word and in prayer as followers and say, not on my watch I will be a chief confessor confessing on behalf of those who don't even recognize they need to have their sins confessed before God that's what's going on here the people are blind to the reality we have chief confessors among us but notice that at the end of his confession Daniel does not buckle under this weight of confession this weight of sin Instead, confession and ownership of sin become an opportunity for God the Redeemer to glorify his name as Daniel turns from prayer of confession to prayer that seeks the glory of God. Prayer that seeks the glory of God. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, he's finally getting to... You notice what he just did there? 14 verses of promise, grasping, confession. He's just now in verse 15 actually getting to the, hey God, this is sort of what I'm, what I'm here for. This is what I'm praying to you. God, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. That's God the Redeemer. 
and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. See, Daniel knows where his help must come from. It must come from the Lord God who brought his people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. He needs God the Redeemer to show up, y'all. It must come from he who is fully worthy of making a name for himself. We far too often rob glory from God by trying to make a name for ourselves. Daniel's saying, no. No, you are the one worthy of making a name for yourself. You're the only one worthy of making a name for yourself. And I am here praying that you would do so. You see, it's only at this point in Daniel's prayer that he turns to petition, making his request known to God. But notice how he does so with an unashamed God-centeredness. It's not, God, you promised, God, I'm praying, confession, confession, right confession of who you are, right confession of who I am. And then all of a sudden he's going to turn and say, I, me, myself, and I, and I want, and I need, and I like, and I, and I, and I, and I, and me, and me, and me, and me, and myself, myself, myself. He's not going to do that. There is an unashamed God-centeredness to his prayer as he finally turns the corner to petition. And this, this petition on Daniel's part, it's not selfishness veiled behind a veneer of prayer. Far too often we use prayer as a thin veneer to disguise our selfishness. Approaching God like some divine genie who's there to give us what we want if we just sort of couch it in some pietistic, holy language called prayer. Daniel is not doing that right now. Daniel is battering heaven in prayer with appeals to God's glory. Listen to how he prays. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Anyone counting how many yours there were? Huh? Someone said a lot. 18. The last time I preached this, I didn't count. And so I went back and I, I got to the end. I'm like, oh man, I should have counted all those. I did this time. 18. 18 yours. 18 moments of God-centered, I am begging you on behalf of your name, on behalf of your glory, on behalf of your worth, on behalf of your righteousness, on behalf of simply who you are. Oh God, will you hear and please respond and act? Not so that we might be made famous, but so that you might be made famous. See, Daniel knows his Bible. I'm going to argue that he knows Psalm 115, verse 1, which says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. If you ever wanted to know how a psalm like that 
fuels prayer. It fuels prayer like verses 15 through 19 in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel isn't praying so that his name might give glory. He's saying, no, not to us, O Lord, not to us, Yahweh. I want you to give glory to your name because glory to your name is the only place where glory is worthy to go. So your, 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 your. In short, if you want to summarize this 19-verse prayer down into a sentence, some of you are like, bro, couldn't we have done this like 40 minutes ago? (laughs) Summarize it. (laughs) One-sentence sermon and wrap this up and been done. I think it'd go like this. Daniel's prayer is this. God, you promised. God, you promised. Therefore, I pray according to your promise for your glory. God, you promised. I'm not making this up. You promised you would do this. Therefore, I'm praying according to your promise for your glory. Saints, my hope for Delta Church is that the coming 30 days of prayer will have a distinctly Daniel-esque substance to them. If someone could walk through the doors of Delta, cross paths with a Deltonian, slip into a community group for the 30 days of April, my hope is that they could sort of go like this. This this smells like something. This smells Daniel-esque. This smells spirit-breathed. This smells God-glorifying. This smells God-centered. This smells like promise-wielding, prayer-pleading, God-glorifying prayer. That's the culture of this place. That's the culture of the people who are anchored here at Delta. You see, I'm excited at the thought of God's promises spurring us on to be mighty in prayer over the 30 days of April. Why? Because revivals start this way. Genuine, God-breathed revivals start on the backs of a people humbly bending themselves in prayer, pleading the promises of God right back to prayer. Genuine conversions of lost people being found, dead spiritually, coming to life. They start on the backs of prayer like this. Cities get dumped on their heads because of things like this. Spiritual wastelands become a gospel oasis starting like this. Personal and corporate holiness begins to thrive because of things like this. Just imagine what could possibly lie on the back end of 30 days of corporate conviction gripping the hearts of Delta people saying on each day, I'm going to do at least one thing. I'm going to grab this promise and I'm going to batter the door of heavens. I'm going to pray this right back to God. I'm going to seek his face. For some of us, we're going to couple it with fasting. Please for mercy that Yahweh would respond to this for his glory. May our God, may our God stick Daniel's prayer deep in our hearts, leading to confession of sin and bringing a corporate conviction to pray the promises of God for his glory. Let's pray, Phil.
Lord, you said, pray and I will hear from heaven. You said your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. You said, lift up your eyes, the harvest is here and the kingdom is near. So hear the confession of our hearts. We are a people guilty of not praying. We are a people guilty of not sharing Jesus. We are a people guilty of not leading our families. Guilty of fear. Guilty of laziness. Guilty of apathy. Guilty of loving comfort and pleasure in this world. Guilty of unwillingness to sacrifice. For these we present our pleas before you, Yahweh. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, would you hear our prayers now? O Lord, would you forgive? O Lord, would you pay attention and act? Please delay not for your own sake. Amen.